So Money, episode 316, Jordan Harbinger. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi, kicking off Monday with a guest that you probably know just by the sound of his voice. He is the co-founder of the Art of Charm podcast, Mr. Jordan Harbinger. Now, once upon a time, Jordan was a Wall Street attorney, and now he's helping people all over the world with their communication skills and interpersonal dynamics, how to walk, talk, be a better version of you. This movement started as a hobby, and now his The Art of Charm podcast, which he started nine years ago, by the way, that was before podcasting was even really a thing has grown to a point where it's getting 2 million downloads per month. Jordan also runs a coaching academy and speaks all across the country. And he gave me a really candid interview. I got to give it to him. You know, funny enough, he was talking to me while packing. He is in Thailand as I speak and as you listen. He shares that dark time when his friends who were at the time his business partners were stealing from him, how he found out, what he did about it, why he's not paying off his student loans right away, even though he could, and what he would do if he had to start over from zero. Here's Jordan Harbinger. Jordan Harbinger, welcome to So Money Podcast Royalty in the House. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Now, I understand before getting on the phone here with you, uh, you're you're leaving town. You're, I am. you're preparing I'm to, to jet off. I'm off to Thailand. Like I'm putting <laughs> socks in a bag with one hand and doing the show on the other. I love it. Uh, and so what's going to be going on in Thailand? How long you, you probably could use a vacation? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't take a lot of vacations. And as you probably know, just from running your own business, you any vacation you take, you're still working anyway. Um, I always envy those people who are like, I just turn off all my email. I'm like, how <laughs> is that even possible? I, I suppose things could run without me, but I would just have like an anxiety attack or something probably if that happened. You would not enjoy the vacation. Give yourself at least 15 minutes a day to check in. I mean, come on, let's be real. Yeah, I just, you know, I'm, maybe it's a self-importance thing, but I assume the world is going to fall apart around me if I'm not connected to the internet. Is that unreasonable? It, I think that's a, that's a fair statement. I mean, especially at this point, you've been working on the art of charm for eight years? Nine years. Nine years. Excuse me. Well, so by now you've got a little bit of momentum. Things are going smoothly in some ways, uh, more so than they were when you first started. And you've got this empire really that's stemming from this phenomenal podcast that's taken on a movement. And just for people out there who've never heard of The Art of Charm, who are living under a rock, um, no offense, but this is a show that correct me if I'm wrong, really wants to help people, particularly men, become the best version of themselves to win at life. You know, teaching you how to talk, how to engage, how to carry yourself through life. This show's about money, as you know, Jordan. I'm curious, how often does money come up in your line of work, in your programs? What are you hearing from the guys? What are the top concerns and how do you address that? Yeah, it's interesting because guys who worry, it's like this was that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. There's guys who worry about money and they don't think about anything else in their life. And the problem is 
if you don't have great relationships and connections, and I don't just mean, you know, girlfriend, wife, whatever. I mean, if you don't have the ability to lead at work, you don't have the ability to make the connections to get better jobs, to maintain clients, et cetera, you will probably always have money problems unless you're such a brilliant tech mind that you invent something. And even then, this is going to be a thorn in your side because we get a lot of tech guys. I live in Silicon Valley. We get a lot of tech types in here and they're like, look, I might be the deputy head of search or whatever at Google or Bing, but I just, you know, I have to give talks in boardrooms and it's friggin' terrifying and I've got to go schmooze and I just can't do it. And so I find that money and social skills, social aptitude, especially at the advanced level are often intertwined. And we've seen this just growing up. We've seen that the people who are the most social, they get cool internships and they have lots of friends. So they end up with cool opportunities and that can also breed resentment. And so it pushes some people further into their shell. But for people who come to the art of charm, what it does is it says, okay, I want this skill set because it's teachable and, and it is learnable. And so that's really important to a lot of people, whether they, whether they're get, getting that skill in order to make more money or keep more money or manage their business better, or whether they've already made some dough doing whatever they do and they just want to handle, hand, handle and hammer down, I would say, this last kind of loose board on the wall, if that makes sense. It does. And now this show, we talk a lot about money and I've even had guests come on, including, for example, Jim Cramer, who has a show about money. Right. But he personally admitted to me on the podcast kind of towards the end that he doesn't actually like talking about his personal wealth. Is that not charming? I find that it's important to talk about money to get us over our, our, our own inhibitions and fears and whatever you want to call them to kind of get from good to great. But some people shy away from it. They think it's not polite. They don't think it's charming. What's your take on all of that? The chatter yeah. around money. You know, it's funny because I've noticed not maybe not recently, the last five or six years teaching what I teach at the Art of Charm, people are much more likely to tell you really gross TMI details about their sex and personal <laughs> lives than they are to tell you like, hey, man, you know, I got 58 grand in credit card debt because I'm stupid or <laughs> I haven't paid off my student loans yet and I'm 40, which is totally normal. Right. And there's a ton of dirty secrets like that. And I, I thought that was really interesting. And so when I, one of the things we teach at the art of charm is to build trust and rapport and likability. And so people tend to tell me a lot of things they don't tell anyone else. And I get letters like, how do I tell her I'm in debt? Or my wife and I are dealing with debt. How do I manage this from a confident angle? Things like that. And the truth is, that you have to be really forthcoming with this information because you can't get help with a problem that you're hiding. It's very, very difficult anyway because you're alone when you hide it. And so if you're not talking about money or money problems or money victories, you're not benefiting from the same things, the same sort of community attitude or, or having people have your back, you know, with other problems in your life. But with money, if you're hiding your issues with it, you're not getting that benefit. So myself as a small business owner, one of the things I have is I'm a member of a lot of groups of kind of tight knit other entrepreneurs. And we talk about money all the time because I might say, uh, I've got this and I need to know what to do with it. Otherwise it's going to become tax. And Somebody will say, oh, you know what? Here's a real estate thing that you can do. Here's a private insurance company thing that you can do. Here are all these different strategies. But if I just went, oh, I don't want to be rude and talk about money, I would have paid, you know, 300, 400,000 extra dollars or whatever the heck amount in taxes for a year. Is that 
is that smart or is being polite a better option? That seems stupid to me to pay Uncle Sam a ton more money and endanger your family's retirement because, you know, I don't want people to think I'm a snob. Who mm-hmm. cares? You're, you know, you have to do it right, but it's very possible. And on the flip side, if you're hiding things like debt or you're buried alive in, in other kind of obligations, if you're not going to get help from somebody who has either fixed that problem or avoided that problem because you don't want to tell someone because it's quote unquote embarrassing, well, now you're alone. You're going to have to figure this out with Google, which means you're going to get scammed 87 mm-hmm. ways to Sunday with like ebooks on getting out of debt and all this other stuff that people who find themselves in debt aren't necessarily uneducated, but a large percentage of them don't have a good money education. And so if you're hiding that and you're, so you're getting your education from sources where you don't have to interact with other people, you're endangering yourself big time. So I think it's it's more of a problem than people realize, whether you have too much money or not enough. Yeah, and um, you yourself, Jordan, I listened to your podcast that you did with Listen Money Matters and you share with them that you're kind of this average Joe. You maybe then, maybe not now, but you at one point still drove a Ford Fusion. Uh, Just turned it in like mon- last Monday. <laughs> okay. I, I still have it and, and now I... I don't, I'm not a fancy guy. Yeah. Yeah. Do you still have student loans? I do. Um, but you know what? I, I was like, I can pay all these off a couple of years back, but <laughs> not being shy to talk about money. I said, yeah, to a couple of my law school friends, I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to pay off all my loans because they said, how's business and all this stuff. And they said, no, 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 don't do that. Some of your loans have an interest rate that's lower than just even a savings account mm-hmm. at a regular bank. Don't bother paying that off because you're getting a really cheap interest free loan from the government. And I said, well, is that going to hurt my ability to buy property because I have a liability on the books? And they said, well, how much is it? I said, I think right now it's literally like, uh, 15,000. It's not a lot of money. It's like 15 grand or something at that super low interest rate. They're like, nah, just let it ride until you're like 50 years old because they can't raise the interest rate on you unless you're looking for some sort of serious, uh, loan from a bank that's not a mortgage because I got a mortgage fine. I, I showed yes. them this and they were like, that's not a big deal at all. So, right. As long as you're paying it and you're in good, uh, you're, you haven't fallen behind, that's yeah, fine. And the interest is not, you know, making like taking a big bite out of your budget. Okay. And also there's the tax benefit too. While the interest isn't high, it's still a deductible thing. Um, yeah. so that makes sense. Right. But yeah, now, what are some perks so that you do enjoy? You're, you're a simple guy, but you, you're going to, uh, Thailand. So that's a nice perk. But what are some other ways you like to splurge? Yeah. So the ways, things that I like to do that are splurgy in the mind of my girlfriend, for example, uh, are I like to pay for convenience, which I know people are like, this is stupid. This is actually kind of a classic money, I don't know, myth or difference in thinking that I find older people or, or maybe certain like types of, of groups will have differently. I like to pay for things out of convenience, not necessarily just comfort. Like I won't buy a first class airline ticket. I'm, I still just can't wrap my mind around the premium on that. Uh, but I will pay for things like, Hey, I don't want to set up shop and wash my own car. I don't like it. It's messy. I don't have a great place to do that. I will buy like a really nice package of car washes. So my car looks and smells new every other month or so or every month. And I, I do the same thing with cleaning the bathroom. My girlfriend will be like, we need to scrub down all the toilets and we need to clean it. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to save 
70 bucks or 50 bucks or whatever a cleaning service costs and be like elbows deep in you know what in my own bathroom on, on a Sunday, on a rare day off when I can do anything but that. I will spend on that. And, and for some people, they think that's ridiculous, including even my parents are like, what? You can clean your own damn toilet. You know, I'm like, I know I can, but I don't want to. And I, I got that way from taking Econ 101 back at the University of Michigan because they were like, well, you know, there's this curve at which a certain, at a certain point, it's more economical for somebody else to do it. Can you make, can you make 50 bucks in the amount of time it would take you to clean your own toilet and pay somebody else less than that to do it? And the answer is yes. Um, do I actually make 50 bucks during that same period of time? No, I chill out and go for a bike ride, but that's not the point. <laughs> right. It's a nice theoretical benchmark to exactly. use. And I use it as well. And we preach it on the show. I'm a big fan of outsourcing and just sidebar women who make more than their husbands, which is something that I'm very interested in writing about. I wrote a whole book about it. They actually do more housework because they feel like they're not as feminine when they make more and they're the breadwinners. So they have to, they resort to these quote unquote housewifery jobs, like cleaning toilets and making dinner and essentially running themselves into the ground because they're trying to overcompensate. Just a little sidebar for you. Yeah. That's awful. It's awful. I think you should only cook if you enjoy it. That's an, uh, okay. Here's another thing that I love doing. I love going out to eat all the time. I don't eat fancy stuff, but I will go to Chipotle twice a day for an entire week. And not, that's not weird to me. <laughs> don't go now to Chipotle. <laughs> I know. Right? And that's how I got E. coli, but um, you know, whatever it is. In Which there. brings me to my next question. No, I'm kidding. Speaking of E. coli. <laughs> Speaking of E. coli, uh, what's the best advice, financial advice you ever got? Maybe it was for us. I noticed you had Ruby Saiti on your, on your podcast. You've had, I believe James Altucher. What's the best financial advice you've ever gotten? You know, it's funny because I have so many smart people on my show, but I will tell you the best financial advice that I ever got slash still get is from my dad because my dad was the first in his family to go to college back in the sixties or whatever, which back then it was a real competitive advantage. It's not what it is now. And he had already been working in the auto industry because we're from Detroit for a really long time. And after that, he started listening to like, you know, AM radio money talk type stuff, you know, with those like old kind of boring guys that say Vanguard every five minutes on the show. And it's nothing like your show where it's actually interesting. And and he listened to that religiously all the time. And so he came up with all these really now cliched bits of advice that he was living by way back in the day, like pay yourself first and put this money in this type of account and get an IRA and get a, a Roth and whatnot. And so I've been doing that since I, I want to say I had a job at like a movie theater back when I was 17 and I was putting little bits of money into retirement accounts and stuff like that. And so, and I opened credit cards when I was 13, but I wasn't allowed to use. <laughs> and there was all kinds of things like that, that were really, really useful. And now when I look back, I'm like, wow, I, I started building wealth when I was a young teenager because my dad grew up with no money, eight brothers and sisters always scraped by and figured out how to kind of put a little bit of solid ground underneath him. So he started me off with that really early. A credit card at 13, you must have excellent credit. 
I do. I have ridiculous credit. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I wasn't allowed to touch that credit card. I right. found out about it when I was like 30. But well, back was in the there. day, you could open up a credit card for your dog. Like it was, and I'm not even joking. There were people who did that as a joke just to see how far they could push the limits because credit cards were being given out, you know, like candy back in the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah. No more, but um, that's a good, good story. Yeah. So I have this old credit card that, that my dad probably has somewhere in a desk. The account's still active. So when they do that sort of, average age of accounts type calculation at the credit bureau. It's like, well, you bet, you've got 30 years of credit or whatever. Not quite that many, but a lot more than anybody else my age. And of course, my dad probably used it once a month to go to McDonald's and then paid it off. You know, so it's, it's pretty stellar. It's kind of funny. And my limit on that is enormous because I've had that been using it and paying it off for, for decades, literally. My dad had an album of credit cards that we, he, that were like defunct or like never, no longer in use. And I just remember that was, that was a pivotal money moment for me. I was like, I want an album of credit cards. And then of course I grew up and learned that, that you shouldn't do that. But, um, different times, different strokes for different folks. Well, one other thing, if I, if I can throw this out there that my dad did that I thought was, well, he he didn't mean to, I was a nosy kid. Well, every kid's nosy. And I sleep through (laughs) my dad's desk and I found some documents with like his investment and retirement accounts on it. And I, I remember learning from my mom that my parents didn't make that much money. I mean, they were, my dad worked for Ford and my mom was a public school teacher in a suburb of Detroit. I mean, these are not these are not, uh, we were not balling and we certainly weren't really indulging in, in a lot of stuff when I was a kid. And so I found these documents about how much he had saved and it just looked like the, it was literally the highest number amount of money that I'd ever seen that wasn't Monopoly, right? Or something even more than that. I just couldn't believe it. And it, it sort of burned its way into my mind. And I was like, how does somebody who, I don't know, probably makes like 40 or 50 grand a year in the 80s and 90s save most of their, I just did not get it. It didn't compute for me at all. And so I, I, I'm not super frugal, but when I look at other people, my age and the way that they spend and consume, it's unbelievable. We're just so different. It's true. If you look at, I think if all of us did this, we looked at how much our parents made in like the eighties on average, they probably made a lot less than what we could potentially make in our twenties and thirties. And to see the lives that they built for themselves, uh, it's pretty impressive. So that's a that's a real nod to your parents that they were able to do that for their kids. You guys grew up not really feeling the 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 pinch, the crunch. Yet you know they were probably watching every dollar. They probably were. And I ask them about this kind of thing now, and they say, "Well, we don't we didn't think about it too much, but we we always lived below our means." That's kind of their like standard reply to this. And I think about it, and I'm like, "Yeah, we didn't go on a ton of vacations, but you know, we had like a little house up north, so I could play in the lake and throw mud at things or whatever, and eat goose poop. That was something I did as a kid, apparently. <laughs> and um, and you know, it was fine. I. I don't remember not being able to get things because we couldn't afford them. I remember not being able to get things because my parents thought they were stupid. <laughs> that was, that was right. basically yeah. why. And, and I didn't, I wasn't like an unhappy kid that you were judged. <laughs> yeah. I was judged. I was judged. That's how parents do it, right? They judge you. They you were stared you, down. Exactly. We don't have the means for this. You have to get used to your place in the world. No, they were like, you're an idiot if you want that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I don't want that anymore. End of discussion. Um, I think that's, you know, in some ways it's like, how do I nip it in the bud stat? 
It's That's stupid, Junior. Done. Let's move on. Oh, you want Nintendo? How about a hug instead? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Your show helps so many people. I'm curious, Jordan, what has been the biggest way your show has helped you? Besides, yeah, of course, I- that it's grown to be this you know, massive, successful business, but from a personal well-being standpoint. Okay. Well, that's a really good question because it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And yeah, of course, people will go, well, I know how a show's helped him. He's got ads on there and he pays his mortgage that way. That's part of it. But aside from that, (laughs) my show started and is now more than ever the platform that I use to create relationships around me. So what we, again, what we teach at AOC is all about relationship development, not necessarily just romantic, not necessarily just business either. So it's great because I can have people that I want to talk to that would have no reason otherwise to, to engage with me on my show. And I give them a great platform, a great audience of really engaged fans that they can speak with. So I can call my favorite authors. I can call actors and have them on the program and they get to teach something to the audience, which they probably never get to talk about because people don't necessarily come to them for this stuff. And I get to ask them the questions that I want to know myself. So that's mostly how I interview. I don't go, all right, I got to think of some really clever, what's your favorite life hack or whatever. When I, when I talk with people, I can just have a regular conversation with my favorite authors, my favorite content creators or whatever. And I can even have them coach me on the show if they're an expert in a topic that I'm curious about. And it's great content for everybody that listens. So it's, it's perfect because that's why it started. I originally thought, what if we get in touch with all these really smart people and ask them questions? And now that's what we're still doing. What's on tap for the new year? Uh, as at this point, you've, you've, you, as you say, you've interviewed everybody, a lot of people that you want to talk to. Who have you yet to interview that you'd really like? And then in terms of a category of people, you know, on this show, for example, I'm trying to really broaden the reach and the scope of the guests. So it's not just, these financial luminaries, but athletes and actors and politicians, especially as we go into the election year, what, who, what new people are you looking to, to meet up with on the art of charm? Well, it always surprises me the types of people that my guests or that my fans suggest uh, as guests. And so I tend to follow that wave a little bit and explore. I, I too am trying to broaden the reach a little bit, but the key is always that the guest has something to teach the audience. So I don't just want somebody to come on and be like, here's what I think, or some sort of untested, non-scientific woo-woo BS. I stay away from all of that. So my challenge is to find really, really interesting top shelf personalities, but get inside their mind, find things that maybe they don't even think are that special or that they've never taught anyone and figure out what makes them tick. So if I'm interviewing an actor or something like that, I need to ask them questions like, how do you deal with the the inevitability of rejection? You're still getting rejected even though you're an A-lister. What are the biggest problems that you have? How do you get around those problems? How can other people get around those same issues? Because otherwise you're just talking, the danger that you run into, Panish, when you do shows with people that are quote unquote famous or well known, is that they all have sound bites. So you can end up with a show that's just a weird collage of crap they've said on every other show. And that, that's really dangerous because there's usually not a lot of takeaways there. There's usually something that they can say on the view that's going to get like a bunch of woos and from the audience. And that's not useful because those tend to be cliches. Like well, everybody's looking at their phones and social media, man, it's like we're all more connected, but we're really more far apart. And everyone's like, yay, but that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> and everyone knows that it's totally or, my favorite. My world is abundant. 
You mm-hmm. know, there are a lot of these catchphrases and words that just seem to be floating and no one really knows what they mean. And, but they're, they're, they're lovely to set, to sound out. Yeah. And it's BS. Oh, the universe provides. No, the universe doesn't care about you. You are a speck of dust. Probably not even that <laughs> in the universe. And if you think that the special cosmic rays are going to make your life quote unquote abundant and prosperous because you're visualizing it and law of attraction. You, I mean, I don't even want to hear about it. I don't even want to hear about it. There's nothing to back that up. And I don't want my audience to, to hear that stuff because it's, it's garbage and uh, I don't allow it on the show. As you were building out the art of charm year over year after year, you're, you're, you know, it's just growing and growing. And now it's this full fledged business. What was the crossroads that you reached where you could have gone one direction and you pivoted, um, or you went a different direction. I think all entrepreneurs, you, you enter your plan with a certain vision, but then at some point it changes. Can you take us to a moment like that and how you dealt with that, uh, that complexity? Yeah. You know, we started off literally nine years ago as kind of like a dating show. Like, all right, guys, if you want to get better with women, you got to listen to the art of charm. And we've, we pivoted because we started getting so much fan mail from female listeners. And they were like, look, you don't have to give this just to men. You can give this towards women too. Cause a lot of these principles apply. And I also stopped being as interested in the dating stuff specifically. And I also found on top of it that all of the nonverbal communication and body language and confidence, all that stuff can be applied to better end in the workplace with your family, with your close friends. So there's no reason to limit it to dating. So I still speak from a male perspective because as far as I know, I've never been anything but a man. Um, and, or as far as you know, <laughs> I've never been anything. <laughs> so I only speak from, a I only know as much as you know. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. We're on the same page. I only speak from experience and I can only let my, I only allow my guests to speak from experience as well. So when I talk about things like dating and, and relationships, I have a female, art of charm coach, come on and discuss that thing, that type of issue. But I like to open up the show entirely to things that I'm experiencing that I'm interested in. So some shows are like, how do you decide if you want to move in with your significant other? And the way that we did that show is I literally brought my, my coach, my female coach, Kim to my studio and she is a licensed therapist. And I was like, run me through this. Like I'm asking you this and I'm on the couch and we just recorded it. And that's how I decided whether or not moving in with Jen, my, my girlfriend was a good idea. And it was really, well, I'd already had ideas in my head, of course, (laughs) but I I do things like that all the time where I will essentially get coached on something that is a pivotal or very important life moment. Um, and I will share the wisdom that I get with my entire audience. And that's powerful because I'm not just having somebody come on and deliver sound bites. And so the show had simply had that trifecta of, female fans making forming a critical mass my life taking a drastic turn and wanting to talk about something else finally other than dating and so we decided and it was a hard choice my business partners were not thrilled about rebranding the show as something that's just based on making you better no matter who you are versus making you a better single guy we had a lot of a lot of heated discussions about it because the common wisdom was if you try to rebrand as something else, you're going to fail because you have this niche audience. But what I had decided was I don't like the niche audience that's just guys trying to chase girls because it's a short-term audience. What we were finding was people were finding so much so much success with what we were teaching, they just stopped tuning in because they got married. And I thought, what kind of 
what kind of enterprise loses their successful customers instantly because they became successful? That's not an industry that I want to be in. And you were listening to your customer. Essentially, that's what prompted this. Yes. So yeah. that's a good sign. I talk about failure on the show is important. I mean, you talk probably about it on your show as well a lot because from a failure, we, we grow. So what's your number one financial failure, Jordan? Something that you don't regret necessarily, but man, it was really, it was a tough lesson to learn. Um, I, I hired some of my friends when I first started this company and I had to fire them and they were stealing from me and uh, I sued them. Yeah. I sued what were them. They how were, how were they stealing actual money? They, they were stealing from you. They were basically, no, it was like this. They were like, Oh, Jordan and AJ, my business partner. They were like, all those guys do is talk into a microphone and cut che- and sign checks. This is BS. Anybody can do this. So they took our client database and they started one of our sales guys and one of our coaches that are, are gone now. They started selling. This is like six plus seven years ago. They started selling people products and being like, Oh, the art of charm. Yeah, it doesn't work. We have this other product that you just PayPal us this money. And like they were funneling. What? Our client, they, what they had done was idiotic. They took all of our super low end clients that couldn't afford any of our products and they called them and offered them something cheap. And so they ended up with a lot of deadbeat clients that were terrible to work with. And we caught them instantly because those disorganized clients that they were selling to were calling and going, Oh, I missed my, my coaching call. And I was like, what coaching call? I didn't even offer that. What are you talking about? And uh, so I caught them and then I sued them. And, And right now a lot of people listening are like, you're an idiot. You hired your friends, but, but here's, here's the lesson. And, and it's sort of a weird sort of double edged sword or, or a caveat, if you will, you are starting when you start a company, you don't have a lot of startup capital for the most part, most of the time. So you need to be able to hire people that are going to do a $60,000 a year job or whatever for $30,000 a year. And so the only people who are going to do that are going to be people that really strongly believe in you and strongly believe in your vision. And who are those people? They're your friends and they're your family. So while the prevailing wisdom is never hire your friends and everybody's rolling their eyes and going, what an idiot. If you start your own business, I challenge you to find employees that are going to do a really good job that are going to work with you in person and aren't just like Filipino VAs overseas doing mundane tasks, routine tasks. Find somebody who's not your friend or your family that's willing to work for a pittance and no equity. And I will eat my hat because there are not those, no, nobody's motivated to do that. So what ends up happening is you hire your friends and you think it's going to be awesome. And for the first year, it's awesome. And then as soon as there's money on the table, they go, why the heck am I not just doing this and taking a bigger cut? And there's entitlement and there's resentment. And um, some people are better than others at handling that. And some people are getting stolen from right now and don't even know it. They should have known better. You're an attorney. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, they're, they're still, they're still doing the same thing. I mean, not necessarily stealing from somebody or whatever, but they're still lazy. I look, I, and I look them up on Facebook from time to time. I stay in touch cause it's water under the bridge. I don't care as much anymore. I look back at it. Like that was a mistake I made that they made. And it was so long ago. It, it's not that big of a deal to me, but I look, I, I, they don't own property. They don't have businesses. They just kind of float around and couch surf. And that's what those, those guys are up to. I'm not saying that, that you can never hire your friends. I think most people have to, you just have to make it, you have to manage that relationship better than I did. And, and that ended up costing me a lot of money and it ended up costing me a lot of friends. This is a question that my listeners are begging me to ask guests in the new year. This is airing 
in December. So I'm going to just, I'm going to test drive this with you and see how, how it goes. And I'm sure you have a good answer for this. Let's say you lost everything, Jordan. I mean, let's say, uh, you had to start over and, uh, you, you had some money, but you really didn't have, you didn't have the podcast. You didn't have your network. What would be the first thing that you would do to get back on track financially, at least, uh, where would you start? Well, I would look at my largest expenses and I would try to cut those. So I'd probably rent out my house because the mortgage is always kind of a hefty, a hefty deal. And, um, you know, that you can only cut so much before you have to start actually making more. So I would have to start over. I mean, look, right now I know I've got the ability to build large tribes on the internet. I've got the ability to essentially convert my voice and my personality into a living. So I would have to start from scratch. But what I do have, especially, I have a ton of relationships that I've built over years. Again, that's what we teach at AOC. So I would call upon pretty much everybody that I know. And I know some really great, successful people. And I would probably relaunch something. I would not probably, I would relaunch something with the support of dozens and dozens and dozens of influencers. And I would every, you would, you wouldn't be able to escape me. I would be in every blog and every inbox <laughs> in the same month. And I would have, I would be back on my feet in a few months. Cause there's easily. nothing like a little adversity to get people to be really, really successful. Every time that the art of charm runs into a serious adverse issue, whether it's internal or external, some kind of threat or even just a disagreement among partners, we always come out the other side and it's like trial by fire. We're just so much stronger for it. We have everything to look forward to. It's, it's really cool. Actually, don't get me wrong. I don't wish this on, I don't wish losing everything on anybody. It's super stressful. You won't sleep for a long time. It's bad for your health, but it's definitely not the end of the world. There's always something that can be done, especially if you have a support network, which is why we teach people to quote unquote, dig the well before you're thirsty. If you look for support after you've lost everything and you haven't built those foundations, you're in deep trouble at that point. A few rapid fire fill in the blanks before we wrap here. If you won the lottery tomorrow, let's say you won a hundred million dollars. What's the first, the first thing I would do is. Uh, the first thing I would do, you know what? I, I don't even, I don't even need that. Um, so I would probably start some kind of charity fund because I don't, I don't have anything that I kind of want to buy. I'd pay off my house, I guess. I don't know. I mean, literally I would just do that because it's a, I'm borrowing a lot of money from the bank to do that. Right. So mm -hmm. that's the first thing that I would do. I would just handle that liability and that outgoing, but I would start some kind of foundation because right now I already do what I love all the time. And I don't have anything else that I can think of that I actually need to do that. Fair enough. That's a good answer. I, you know what? No, I take it back. Okay. I would have a chef and they would cook <laughs> bomb food every day. Um, my girlfriend's a great cook, but you know, I, I would love for somebody else to do all the shopping and all the cooking and the cleaning. And the cleaning, especially, I was going to say. Cleaning. Yeah. Even if it's really even the if cleaning, help, <laughs> even if we help the same chef cook, right? <laughs> I just don't want to do the dishes and go to the grocery store. I have this weird hatred for the grocery store. It's the most boring place in the world. It smells weird. It's cold. I just hate it. I can't it is. It does have some climate issues in the fridge, in the, in the grocery store. It's like, do yeah. I dress? How do I dress to go to the grocery store? I'll be cold half the time, home yeah. half the time. I'm I, a huge I feel fan you. not going to the grocery store ever. Well, in New York, where do you live? You're in Silicon Valley. We, yeah. you, can't you order your groceries online? 
I can. It's just seems yeah, I can do that, but you end up like they don't pick produce that well. You can't be True. like I want all really firm tomatoes. They're like you're getting the tomatoes that I put in this bag. You know that's a, that's <laughs> and a fact. you will like them. Yes, if there's a br- <laughs> oh I didn't notice that that one was really squishy. Okay, you did you touch it with your hand at all at any point? Because if so, you know that it's like a squishy water balloon mess. Yeah, I just I don't know, and you know people who like to cook like Jen, she likes to go shopping for the ingredients too. It's part of the mm-hmm. process, but I just I happen to be roped along for the ride some of the time. And it's, I don't know, I'm like a little kid. I just, I'm screaming until I get to leave. The one thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? Uh, cleaning service. Yes. Men and women alike share this answer. You know, more women than men, but it's definitely evening out <laughs> over the year. When I was young, the one thing I wish I had learned about money is your dad was very instrumental in helping you have a good introduction to money. But what's one thing you wish that he or others had taught you? I wish that I had learned that you don't have to have a job to make money. I didn't even think about that until after I'd already been a Wall Street attorney for a really long time. Uh, I hadn't even, well, a really long time, a, a, a certain amount of time. I, I hadn't, it hadn't even occurred to me that I don't have to work for a company to be successful. And I've, had I been of that mindset as a teenager, I probably would have done a lot of things in my life completely differently. Absolutely. Yeah. The fact that you could create your own job. I think that entrepreneurship is a relatively new, it's, we're in, we're experiencing a new wave, I should say. It's, I mean, it's been around forever. I think in the olden days, we called it inventing. Now we yeah. call it entrepreneurship. So uh, I think it, for our parents' generation, it was still not something that they trusted or even saw as a viable long-term you know, fulfillment. Okay. When I donate, I like to give to blank because? I give to um, schools and not local, but like schools educational charities that say take girls in Guatemala and give them education and dental care and stuff because otherwise they would just be living in a thatched roof hut Mm. in the middle of nowhere, you know, popping out babies. Oh, that's a visual. Right? Um, Yeah, I'll tell you, I get pictures of this little girl in Guatemala who I sponsor and they give me this like list of where she lives and it's like type of plumbing and it says open field. I'm like, they just go to the bathroom in a field that's behind their village. That's it. And, and there's no electricity. There's no water. And, you know, she speaks some sort of Aboriginal language along with a little bit of Spanish. And she colors me these pictures. And it's like, this is me planting trees. And it's like a huge field. And I'm thinking, she's basically got a ton of manual labor, even yeah. though she's eight. You're like, and I don't want to clean my toilet. So what does, right. that, what does that make me? That I, yeah, I have a toilet. She doesn't even have a toilet. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really, what's the name of the charity? Uh, this one is Children International okay. that I donate to, but I also like Pencils of Promise, obviously, because, yes. you know, it's a solid one. They have great PR. Can I just say that? Yeah. Pencil, I mean, every uh, entrepreneur who I had on the podcast, uh, not every, but many enough now where I'm like, wow, they they must send out some very compelling PR materials. I mean, you know what it is? Adam Brown is a relationship builder. He follows what we teach at AOC and he goes and meets people that are influencers and they influence other people and he maintains all those relationships really well. It's brilliant. Last but not least, I'm Jordan Harbinger. I'm so money because? Because I give away all of the things that I learned for free. It's so great. And it's not a job, a job that, you know, 
you thought you had to have when you were a kid. Bravo to you. Congrats on getting out of getting the hell out of town. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's supposed to be like low 90s in Thailand and only 50% humidity. So they're like, it's so great over here right now. So I'm going to go into a beach villa and I'm going to chill. And I know your flight is in a few hours. So I know it's international. You better get to the gate really soon because, you know, security, especially this time of year, can be tight. Well, I got to let in my house sitter and make sure they know how not to burn the place down by accident. <laughs> yeah, you got post-its everywhere, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, look, it's a, it's a single guy, so there's going to be a ton of people in here. So I'm basically stashing everything breakable and making sure that, like, you know, the dog doesn't annihilate half oh, of the furniture. Lock yeah. up that liquor cabinet. Uh, or that, don't. That they can have. Know. That they can have. <laughs> Take the liquor. All right, Jordan. Thank you so much again. A real pleasure. Bon voyage. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Jordan, his website is theartofcharm.com. He's also on Twitter at The Art of Charm. He's very engaged, so I suggest you follow him. He's a great person to know online. And if you want to get the transcript for this interview or the audio clip and leave a comment, head over to somoneypodcast.com. And there also you can leave me a question for the Friday episodes. As you know, click on Ask Farnoosh, and that is the best way to reach me. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Hope you're having a great start to your week. Hope your day is so money. 